and welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. I am Joe Wolfond, and my co-host, Joseph Cacharo, is away for a wedding. So I got to have a guest on today, one I'm very excited to talk to, one of my favorite writers and podcasters in the business, uh, I guess formerly and currently of Yahoo Sports, <laughs> formerly right. of The Ringer, co-host of the No Cap Room podcast with Jake Fisher, and sole host of the wonderful Divine Intervention podcast. It's Dan Divine. Dan, thanks for being here. How are you doing, man? I'm doing well. I, I'm taking it as a personal slight that Joe is ducking me. Like I know you're saying he's at a wedding, but I feel like this is disrespect, and I'm going to take it that way. He's and ducking the smoke. I feel like that's the case. I feel like that's the case. Um, no, it's uh, I'm I'm good. I'm I'm doing well. Like before we started started recording, we were just talking about the the bleary eyed tiredness of uh, full time writers and full time dads, and we're doing the best we can with what we got. But today we got coffee, we got some snow coming down out here. Like, I, I, it must be that they knew that I was going on in Toronto. So, like, the you know, we've got some flurries out the yeah. window here. I got a dog that's not barking. We're doing great. And I'm excited to talk about the NBA with you. We got a dusting here overnight as well. So, tis the season, I guess. Absolutely. We're, it's setting, setting a, a real calming vibe <laughs> for us to get this, these Fuego takes off. Absolutely. The, the first thing I wanted to ask you about is the separation for you of like fandom and writing because mm. I feel a certain kinship in the sense that, well, I don't know. You can tell me, I guess, if this is still the case for you, but I felt like for a while, despite you covering the entire league and doing it with a great deal of objectivity, I sensed that you still had a soft spot in your heart for the New York Knickerbockers. And <laughs> much like me and Joe Cash still kind of uh, knelt at the altar of uh, regional bias. So, sure. you know, we we cover the whole league, but we still hold a place in our hearts for the Raptors. W where are you at with your Knicks fandom these days? And how does uh, how does that work for you, I guess, in folding that into your everyday job? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question because I feel like just by virtue of sticking around, I have wound up occupying a different space in, in our, like, writing ecosystem. So I like I started doing this as a guy who wrote blog posts like I just like had a WordPress blog on my own and then wound up doing you know uh 25 bu or for first for free and then 25 buck a freelance post blog posts uh for skeets at Ball Don't Lie and that that grew out of just fandom, right? I was a, a I really loved the NBA. I had I started to get like when I was growing up, I was sort of a more omnivorous fan like and you still have your your parochial regional stuff where it's like it's the Giants, it's the Rangers, it's the Mets, it's whatever, like each team in each sport. But um, as I got started to get older and into like my mid 20s, the Knicks were the thing that I really started sort of focusing on more and falling in love with more. And the the coverage of the NBA, the way it was covered online was something I really loved, like the burgeoning podcast industry, burgeoning blogosphere, even though, you know, the way bigger companies were then sort of like putting fans in those positions to comment and respond. And I guess it's sort of like the second order or third order response to like Bill Simmons becoming a huge deal at ESPN and like that voice of the fan becoming a more widely distributed thing. And so that became like, oh, there's not you know, our band could be your life, right? You know, you pick up the guitar and you play the song. And so like, I got into it from that and there was no expectation that I would have to pretend I didn't like the Knicks. And in fact, in writing about the Knicks, only, like no one hates the Knicks more than people who love the Knicks. <laughs> right. So like, 
I would get when I would write about the Knicks, I would more frequently get blowback from Knicks fans being like, this guy hates them, you know, and like, why would you assign the guy that hates them to write about them? Which then I guess let me know that I wasn't uh, if I, if anything, I was letting the bias steer me the other way. And right. so like, but just as I've gone on, like, you know, like you've got more opportunities to actually do more like live coverage and go cover, you know, go to go to games and go interview people and go whatever. Like, I'd still not the primary part of my job, like at Yahoo, uh, Jake Fisher is, you know, one of the best in sort of insider reporters in the business. And Vinny Goodwill is constantly uh, in, in gyms all over the place talking to people. Kristen Peake is, you know, one of the best in the world when it comes to prep reporting and like on the ground, I'm at every Peach Jam and EYBL and whatever. Like I work with people who are there constantly. I am a, still a little bit more throwing spitballs from the couch. But yeah, I've found that I understand the premise of you're supposed to be a professional. You're supposed to be an objective journalist. You're supposed to not allow your feelings to cloud your judgment. But I don't think that means that you can't act like you like stuff. I don't think that that is being honest to your readership either or to the to the audience that you're like, we don't have to run a big disclaimer on the top of everything I write about the Knicks. Like, you know, uh, full disclosure, Dan Devine grew up in Brooklyn and writes about the Knicks and likes the Knicks. Yeah. But like, if my passion for them or my understanding of their history and my the fact that I've actually watched a lot watched this a lot more closely than maybe some of the people that might be reading it, if that I think it would if I didn't allow that to inform the way I responded to it, I think that would be kind of cutting off your nose to spite your face. So the goal is to find some balance in it, like not to pretend that I am objective and on and, and balanced in all things, but to find a balance like am I allowing that interest or that passion or whatever to inform the writing and inform the analysis in a, in a way that I think gives, gives the reader something. And so hopefully you, you fall on that side of it. But in terms of where I am with the Knicks right now, like the note that I have in my notes when I think about them is like, are they a gatekeeper or can they be more than that? Mm. Um, because like they're a, they're, this is the most reliably solid Knicks iteration of my recent life, you know, like of the last like 15 years. Um, like there was, there were, there's been the picks and the ups and downs of like, well, there was the cool Mike Wood scenario where Mello played the four. There was a little bit of the D'Antoni era. There was, you know, this, this team and that team, this is like, it feels like they're stable, but there's, you know, there, there's the forever, the looming question of like, well, can they get a star in? They, I think they've built as about as solid a foundation of sub, all NBA first team caliber player that you can. Like, I think they've maxed out kind of what this iteration of it can look like. And they're near like near top 10 offense, top five defense. They just don't have the thing and whether they can get it or not will remain to be seen. But yeah, I I, they, I think they're, and the, I, I'm not saying they're a fun watch night tonight, but I, <laughs> but I enjoy the process of where they've gotten to with it and watching yeah. them, figure things out and, and be like, Oh, we just don't play that many bad players. Like they're there. The team has a pretty consistent quality of, of player that has not been true for most of the last 20, 25 years. So I have, to, and it's weird. I, uh, one of my colleagues was, was writing something about the Knicks and asked me like, have you written about them this season? And this was probably the deepest into a season. I have not written about them. Uh, so maybe that means at some point I've got to, you know, dust off the dust off the hat and get in there. Yeah. For, I mean, to your point earlier, I think it's, what I've found in, because I do write about the Raptors probably like slightly more than I write about other teams in the league just because I'm here and I have. Yeah, you're working for a Canadian outlet. Yeah, yeah, like it um, makes sense. 
but I I think that it is very possible to write about them objectively and like to be very honest about what they are while also being honest about how what they are makes you feel. I think that yeah. there doesn't necessarily have to be a contradiction in that. So, you know, you talking about the Knicks not necessarily being the most fun team to watch. <laughs> Having watched a lot of Raptors games over the last three years, I, I definitely know the feeling of watching a team that is not really very good at shooting the basketball or putting the ball <laughs> in the basket. And yet manages to like jerry rig an above average offense by virtue of just not turning the ball over and then offensive rebounding the hell out of it and then they force a ton of turnovers too so they have this like gargantuan possession advantage which is what the raptors were doing the last two years under nick nurse it's like if you are good at taking the ball away and then not giving it back that can make up for a lot but It's also like a real slog to watch sometimes. And sometimes I'm like, yeah, I would just like to watch a really smooth 1-5 pick and roll where the guy running it is like a serious threat to pull up from three. And you put the defense in rotation and the ball gets whipping around. And uh, we just don't see that a ton of the time. It does. Sorry, it does ahead. feel spiritually appropriate, though. Like my my use. So I'm I'm a, I think I'm a little older than you. I'm 41 years old. I grew up watching the Knicks in like the uh, early 90s, early to mid 90s. So the teams of my youth is it's Ewing, it's Charles Oakley, it's Anthony Mason, it's John Starks, it's you know functional point guards, but not like elite point guards. You know, like you topped out at a Greg Anthony, Derek Harper. Like it wasn't elite guys. And so the Knicks would be this team that. I'm not saying that it's like I want the Knicks to be clotheslining people now, but there is. Oh, sorry, I shouldn't have done that while you were drinking water. I apologize. Um, but I may have done a spit take. But uh, as long as I didn't choke you, I guess that's good. We'll, we'll, we'll relegate the choking to Xavier McDaniel. But um, Charles Brewell, right? Exactly. But um, every year they ran up against, or it felt like every year they ran up against the Bulls, or they would run up against the Pacers, and the Pacers, like Reggie Miller, was an you know, a bona fide multi-time all-star, et cetera. But like there was a point where you ran up against Jordan or you ran up against Olajuwon and you're like, oh, well, our guy isn't like that. You know, where you're like, that looks a lot easier. That Or like that is a level of smoothness and sort of like elegance and, you know, sort of impenetrability that you don't get from the like labored Patrick Ewing. And who, who was, you know, I, also a hall of famer in his own right. No, but like it just, it didn't, it never looked easy like that. And that's what, that is a spiritual, I think, component to this Knicks team. Like whenever they score, it's Jalen Brunson throwing (laughs) 11 shoulder fakes and eyebrow fakes and, and jab steps, or it's Julius Randall, like juggernauting his way through some people and spinning into, you know, a reverse pivoting baseline fade that you're like, all right, I guess, yeah. you know, um, so like all that to say there, I, I imagine as when we talk about like the teams that are going to win a championship, all of them have the guy that makes it look easy right. and uh, maybe more than one of them. And, uh, you know, the Knicks, Knicks, not so much. So but maybe, you know, I'm also not the kind of writer that makes it look easy. I feel like I make it look like I'm sweating a lot. So maybe it, it maybe it all fits. You you were forged in the darkness. So. <laughs> Yeah, I get last question on the Knicks though. How how much of this do you feel like just comes back to Randall at the end of the day? Because I feel like the team's identity is so tied to him and what the team, I guess, what any team, I guess, with Julius Randall is forced to become. I feel like 
it's he's obviously a much different player than Russell Westbrook, but it's sort of how I always felt mm. about Russell Westbrook teams where the team almost necessarily takes on like a Russell Westbrook type of identity. And like I can watch Julius Randle and recognize that he's obviously very good, but to me, he is also, if I was going to point to someone or something and be like, that is essentially what is capping the Knicks ceiling, I feel like it is Randall. I think that's a very fair way to think about it. And I think, I think a lot of, I think a lot of things. Um, I think if everybody there believed that Julius Randall could be the best player on a championship team and like the set, the centerpiece focal point of what they wanted the Knicks organization to be, they wouldn't have picked Obi Toppin like eighth overall to mm. play power forward in the draft where four picks after that or whatever, uh, Tyrese Halliburton goes, but that, it's neither here nor there. Um, uh, and like two picks after that, I think Devin Vassell goes something like that, but like they didn't think he would be that guy. And so they drafted a guy and then Randall comes back and is, makes all NBA and you're like, oh, and they make the playoffs for the first time in a while and everything looks different and the, the, the vibe and the spirit is so much better. And so then Randall gets paid, but also not like paid, paid. He gets paid like a, I think it was like four years, 114 or something like that. And there was some guarantee issue. Like there was, it was like, yeah, okay, let's sort of see where it goes. And then everything tanks for a season and you're like, well, all right, see, He's given thumbs down to the crowd. They're 37 win team again. Like there you go. And then he goes back last season and makes all NBA again. And you're like, huh? Um, All right. So what the hell do we do now? Um, And so I think all that to say the beginning of this season too, you're like, it's all lining up for them to be at least as good as last year. They win a playoff series last year. They win a playoff series with him being like in and out of the lineup and injured and alternately ineffective. And how much of that was injury and how much of that was, you can't rely on this guy in a playoff series and he can get schemed out and the shot isn't real and yada, yada, yada. And it becomes very clear, like this is Brunson's team, but also that's the guy who's made all NBA twice. So like, the beginning mm-hmm. of the season, he can't make a shot. He can't finish in the uh, in the paint. And you're like, okay, well, I guess they're just bad at offense. And then it's like, well, no, he's 40 against the Bucks and 25, 20, and five. And like the last 10 or 12 games, it's like, oh, no, this is back to 23, 10, and six or whatever. And on shooting efficiency, just good enough that you're like, well, I guess he's an all-NBA guy again. Yeah. So there is a uh, – What's the word for it? You don't want to like look a gift horse in the mouth and you don't want to disrespect a level of production and dependability that very few Knicks players have shown in the recent past. Like Randall has been the most one of the most productive Knicks of the last like 20 years, which says more about the last 20 years maybe than it says about Randall, but it's also inarguably true. But it does feel like if you looked at what, you know, what this structure could be. And you're like, I believe in Brunson. I can believe in R.J. Barrett, who's another sort of, uh, you know, touchy figure among Knicks fandom. But like if the if the the three continues, I can believe in him as like a connector third best guy who I could I believe I can trust in a playoff series to at least be like solid. He was solid through those two rounds last year. And then you're like the mix and match pieces around it. But like if I need a guy that I know can be the best front court player on a team that's got serious aspirations, I still don't know that about Randall. And the the thing that always comes back to me, it's one of the funniest and meanest things I've ever read online. Uh, Miles Brown, one of, I I don't know very well. I know a little bit, but one of my favorite 
internet people in this basketball world. When they lost to the Hawks, he called Randall Canal Street Zion. And he said, the reason that he has, when you get to this level, everybody else's bag is real. And I'm like, well, Jesus, um, is Randall the guy that's just like against the best of the best? He is his his skill set. You start to see the seams and it doesn't look real. And I think we're three years down the line and I still don't know the answer to that question. So, yeah, I think you're right to say that an awful lot depends on what he gives you and maybe his presence necessarily, you know, reduces the ceiling or brings on the ceiling, but he's also elevated their floor in a way that few players have over the last couple of decades. Yeah. He's like one of those players where the ceiling and the floor are like actually just like one slab of concrete. Yeah, closer basically. to closer <laughs> together than you'd like for somebody at that level for sure. Yeah. Um, I'm imagining like the, whatever, like in being John Malkovich, like the 13 and a half floor <laughs> or whatever, that's Julius Randall in a visual <laughs> metaphor, I guess. Um, I speaking of the Knicks though, they, they did make it to the knockout stage of the in-season tournament. And I didn't want to spend too much time, uh, on the IST because by the time this is published, we're going to be getting pretty close to game time sure. of the semifinals. But, uh, I did want to just get your thoughts generally about how this has gone in year one because i know you've done a really thorough job of covering it from the beginning even in the group <laughs> stage you're breaking down the results you're breaking down tiebreaker scenarios keeping the people informed just doing the lord's work so yeah like i guess positives and negatives from uh your perspective on how this has gone in year one yeah. Negatives, uh, number one is tiebreaker scenario. Having to learn a lot about tiebreaker scenarios for me personally, negative. I wasn't doing the Lord's work. I was doing the boss's work. They asked me to do that. So uh, I don't know that God entered into it in any capacity. But um, yeah, I think I have always had what I felt to be a pretty mild view of this, which is I think I skew traditionalist largely or I'm like, what I like is basketball games. So the more things that you sort of tack onto it as like streamers and gaudy ribbons and stuff, I don't really need all that that much. But if the basketball was good, I bet I'm going to be interested in it. And if the players are motivated and interested, I bet they're going to play hard and play well. And then that's going to make for good basketball games, which I will enjoy watching. And I was, th that was sort of my view. I was a little bit more jaundiced on the play in tournament where I was like, I don't know, man, we need, we really need all this. And then it resulted in like more competitive and compelling March and early April basketball during a period where it's often you're just playing out the string. So I was like, all right, I was wrong about that. So let me take an open mind into this. And it's been much the same. Like the only, the, the, the keystone to all of it is like, do, do like, I, I heard people say, and I had conversations about like, if the players all get an extra half million dollars, what does that do for me as a fan? Why do I care? These guys are already making insurmountable or you know significantly more money than I can even fathom. And the reason it matters is because if that matters to them, they are going to give a crap. And if they give a crap and they're playing and they're suiting up, then they're going to and they're like actually the coaches are extending the minutes and the guys are playing harder. It's going to make the competitive basketball better. And you know what? It turns out people like watching competitive basketball because competitive basketball rules. So <laughs> my big takeaway from this was if you can create an incentive structure that the players respond to, the play is going to get better. And if the play is better. I kind of don't care what the floor looks like or what the jerseys look like. Although those Los Angeles Lakers jerseys with like all the full words, those are abysmal. So like, you know, no, thank you. Um, many of the designs, not so great, but yes, the general idea of like, as long as it's 
as long as the play is good, I kind of don't give a crap what floor they're playing on. Um, and I didn't think that the, I thought that the, like the point differential, it, see, it it created stakes and drama where previously there were not, there was not any. And like, if, if some players are mad about that, that's kind of okay. You know, like, I don't think not making anyone mad was the goal. I think making a more compelling product was the goal. And I think they succeeded in that. And then when you get to the stage where it's the final eight, the final four, and you're like, there is, you had blue blood teams. You had the Lakers and Celtics in it with superstar players that everybody already knows. You had Giannis, a superstar player. Everybody already knows you get uh, the Knicks, you know, traditional sort of power franchise. You get the Pacers where people are like, what? And then you have an opportunity to learn about their superstar player and what makes that guy a superstar player all sort of like in, it could not have been gift wrapped more perfectly for a national audience than what Tyrese Halliburton and the Pacers did to the Celtics and the way it was sort of quiet first half third quarter. Oh my God. Like I think all of this, if, if we are in the process of trying to figure out what does, you know, who are the next layer of stars? What is the next sort of, uh, generation of compelling storylines for people to follow. Like all of this goes into the myth making, all of this goes into the um, familiarizing the public with the wide array of talent beyond the top levels. If you're, if, if you're a fan and you're like, I want to see more of that team and that guy, why is that guy? Why was that that guy's first game on TNT? First of all, I want to see more yeah. of that dude. Um, then, you know, so much the better for it. And so like now, where where it goes from here, I kind of, I feel like it's I feel like it has been a success. I don't know what the ratings say. I don't kind of don't care too much about it. Obviously, the league does, but in terms of putting on a compelling basketball product, which is what they want to be able eventually to sell to a streaming service or to whatever you know next party comes in in the next round of of media rights negotiations, like they've created something that is compelling to watch. Whether that remains to be seen, whether it'll be that way year in year out, I don't know, but. It doesn't seem to be impacting negatively impacting like the FA Cup or whatever. People still seem to uh, be willing, even if the specifics change, the general thing seems to work. So uh, I think it's gone about as well as they could have hoped for so far. And no one got no one got like seriously hurt on a court, I think. Right. Like right. we've had or had li limited serious injuries due to slickness of painted court. So, you know, that's something to tweak moving forward as well. Yeah, I, I would say like I don't care about the ratings either in the sense that like it doesn't impact me as a fan or an analyst of the game right. and i it's not like the league is in danger of going under to the point that we need to be concerned trolling about ratings i do care about it in the sense that i actually want to know how this is being received mm -hmm. by the kind of general public and maybe the casual nba fan because it's easy to get wrapped up in it when we're in our cloistered little nba twitter bubble and everyone's super excited about it but that sure. is maybe not an accurate representation of how the NBA fandom writ large is dealing with this. So, well, I will, I, I will say this to that. So you mentioned how uh, closely I've been paying attention to it, right? How closely I've been covering it. Part of that is because the hierarchy of bosses above me at Yahoo Sports have been like, people are interested in this, their data, their they, and not, and not just like the diehard NBA viewing fans that's that, you know, read our stuff, whatever, regularly, people broadly are interested in this as a conceit and a concept. So let's c devote coverage resources to it and devote coverage resources to it. I meant a lot of me learning tiebreakers, but, um, 
now that's anecdotal and that's one source of information. But like for to me, what that indicated was all these people who are kind of, as we said earlier, omnivorous sports fans who like will just go in and out of college football to golf to whatever, they're interested in this thing. So that's why we got to write a bunch about it. And if that's the case here, I imagine it's the case more broadly. And if that's the case more broadly, then they got something on their hands. All right. So really quickly, just because again, by the time this goes up, sure. the games are going to be ready to tip off, but we got Pacers Bucks and we got Lakers Pelicans. Who do you like? Uh, I like the, I like the Pacers just for the vibes. Um, I think that, I mean, I think overall team quality, you'd have a hard time convincing me that the Bucks are not the better team, even though the Bucks have been up and down. I know you've written about the, the two man game and the sort of struggles of getting Dame and Giannis on the same page. They've been moving more in that direction. It seems like, although not at the volume you'd like, I wrote earlier in the season about their defense and the challenges they were having there since the, basically since that Toronto loss, they've been a little bit more traditional and a little bit closer to a top 10 defense, even with some wonky personnel. Um, so I think that they're a better team front to back and they'll have the two, the, of two of the three best players in that game. But to me, it's like a race to 23s. Uh, I wrote about I wrote about this uh, when I wrote about the, um, the little preview at Yahoo Sports this morning. It was like there have been, I think, 28 games of nine, of 20 or more threes by teams this season. And these two teams have nine of them. Um, and like the buck, the one thing the Pacers do really well is limit three point shooting, like uh, three point shooting attempts. And so yeah. it's like, can the, the bucks, I gotta say, to sorry to interrupt you, but no, I hesitate to even call that something they do well because the cost <laughs> of it is just oh. like, so it like the, their opponent rim rate and like how badly they yeah. get gapped on account of their help averse strategy is i just don't think it's worth it well yeah but it's, it, it's also it, really it funny like their their home court their home alternate court in the in-season tournament literally has a yellow brick road to the rim like it is just a straight yellow line right at the basket um and i was like well that's a little bit you know on the nose but no yeah I, you're right but i I think, and I, I'm not the, you know, uh, I had Caitlin Cooper on Divine Intervention this week. Caitlin Cooper is the absolute best covering the Pacers there is. Um, so mainline her takes, go, you know, ba basketball, she wrote Patreon. Uh, but what she was, she was talking to say basically like the gamble is if we don't, if we stay home on everything, we're giving up fewer threes. And yes, you will get high percentage looks at the rim, but maybe Miles, uh, Miles Turner blocks some of them. Maybe Miles Turner, uh, avert some of them or distort some of them. And we feel so confident that we're going to get the highest possible efficiency look on the other end that over the course of a hundred or 110 possessions, it's going to work out in our favor. And like not every night, I think whatever they're like 11 and eight or 12 and eight, but like with that offense, you only got to be right every once in a while. And so I, I think that they are, I wouldn't be surprised if they were right often enough against the Bucks. But then also the last time the Bucks saw them, Giannis had 54 and they didn't play with, they didn't have Dame. So I don't know. I think the, the, my prediction for that one is less, are the, is the Pacers going to win and more like bet the over, whatever the hell the over is. Um, 256 and a half is the, is the point total over under. It's a so. giant, that's a giant number, but I wouldn't be surprised. Um, and then in the West, like, the Lakers are not, I don't think the Lakers are good, but the Lakers are like indestructible in this tournament. So uh, I think I would, I would probably lean there, but um, if for only re no other reason, then I think the Pelicans are fascinating. I know that people 
like me maybe are over indexing on how fascinating we find the Pelicans, but that they're finally getting mostly healthy. They've got all those wings that they can play. They're still figuring out the balance between Zion and Brandon Ingram because those guys just haven't played a lot of games together, um, let alone with CJ McCollum. And I think they still don't necessarily know exactly what they want to get to and when they want to get to it. And the Lakers, though their their menu might be limited, I think they know what they want to get to. Um, and I think that the 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 swing thing there, I wrote again, wrote about this a little bit this morning. If the Lakers can get out and transition, I think that's a big problem. Like the Pelicans are generally pretty good at keeping you away from the rim, but in transition, they're not a great transition defense team. And the Lakers look to tear ass down the court. Nobody has scored more points on the fast break than LeBron, um, which is insane given that we're still like, what, we're three weeks away from his 39th birthday. I'm 41 and can barely sit in this chair to talk to you. And he's uh, doing that. So I think that that's the the sort of swing thing for me. Can the Pelicans figure out the lineups that they want to get to, to be consistent enough to keep them out of transition and like find the right spacing, the right balance between spacing and defense um, to limit LeBron? Because if they can't, then they're in big trouble. Yeah, just the like LeBron versus Herb Jones matchup is going to be maybe the single most fun thing to watch tonight. There's so. a there's a chance that LeBron just picks Herb uh, you like uses Herb Jones as a toothpick basically though. Like LeBron LeBron like LeBron looks like he I mean he's like whatever 68250 but also like that I wouldn't I wouldn't be surprised if he could control his density and just make himself like actually I'm 755 <laughs> pounds right now and I'm just going to like basically put Herb Jones in the torture rack as I go. But uh, but yeah, Herb, Herb's going to make him work for it. But LeBron, you know, a little hard work never never seemed to hurt him too much. Yeah, I have like come all the way around to... Th- there was a time when I was just like really rolling my eyes at all of the... Like, he's doing this in year 17 or year 18 or year 19. Like, appreciate LeBron, all this stuff. I was like, okay, I get it, I get it. And now I've come all the way back around to... No, actually, I think we need to lay this on even thicker because what yeah. he is doing as a near 39-year-old is so insane and you know you mentioned you're 41 i am you know in my 30s don't need to divulge exactly how old i am wow all right see i'm out here being open with the people and that's not for everybody i get it i i host i host a fake self-help self-help podcast about (laughs) basketball so i signed up for that not everybody has i get it okay i'll say i'm 36 so like basically a grandpa in nba years right (laughs) and it doesn't feel that way but it, I, I catch myself sometimes when I'm talking about, you know, like Kyle Lowry. This guy is ancient. And it's like, oh, yes. yeah, he's a year older than me. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think there's this like funny thing that happened. And this doesn't really apply specifically to LeBron because I think, you know, his fandom has been extremely devoted from day one. Yes. But there's this interesting thing I feel like that happens with these elite athletes as they age where even fans who didn't have a lot of skin in the game and who didn't necessarily even like them or want to see them succeed, as they get older and are just like fighting tooth and nail to stave off father time, I feel like there's a real groundswell of support for that struggle because it's like kind of all of our struggle. You know what I mean? And like a win for a 39-year-old athlete who's beating back father time feels like a win for all of us in a way. To be like, hey, maybe this is possible and maybe the slow <laughs> march of time and the creep of death isn't as imminent as we feel like it is. So that's that's been my feeling watching LeBron James this season. I love that. I think it's I think it's right. And, and also the feeling of so there's a couple things to that one. just like when you have been able to see the entirety of that guy's story 
you know, or that, or yeah. that athlete story rather, cause it's not, you know, there's, uh, uh, not specific to a male athlete, but yeah, you're invested a little bit more in the dramatic nature of it and, and in the, the nature of the story arc. Um, and then when that you can see, like there are nights where he does not have it all the way together, where he does not have that same burst off the line or the jumper is not working or what, you know, it's, it, you need a little bit more from everybody else. It's a little bit more distributor mode and you know, save the juice for the other games, which is part of why I'm like, again, they're not great outside the tournament, but LeBron was a little bit like, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to save it up for that. And I'll be like at my best in those games because that's where the extra half million for everybody is. Uh, you know, maybe, maybe not maybe, but like the, the highest competitive thing, like, let me go compete for that. Um, but yeah, I, I, the, there is some, uh, hubris too, and being able to be like, yeah, man, maybe that I can relate to that. Maybe that's true for me. You know, I don't have the thunderbolt from God, uh, athleticism and size and ski, speed and skill. I'm not putting a million plus dollars a year into my body, but like, you know, maybe I could just, I could get, I could get there today. I, I can't be as good as I used to be, but like for one day, man, maybe I got it. Maybe I still got it in whatever capacity you've got. Oftentimes that's not true for most of us, but yeah. seeing it in front of us that way, yeah, it gives you something to aspire to, if nothing else. Yeah, and I think it's also just, you see these dominant athletes who in their primes were like so indestructible and so right. imperious. And then you start to see this vulnerability in them that you hadn't seen before as they're kind of raging against the dying of the light. And for me, like that... Like Roger Federer, obviously, mm. you know, aesthetically, just like the most beautiful tennis player to watch. But in his prime, I didn't like him. Like he was so dominant and I was just always like as much as I could appreciate the craft, I was like, maybe it would be nice to like see some other players win, you know? Yeah, and so I wasn't right. like a big Roger Federer fan necessarily. But then later in his career, when he kind of had to reinvent his game a little bit and find different ways to win and was just like, you know, not on the same level that LeBron is doing it now, but like sort of doing the same thing in terms of just like defying the aging curve. I became very invested in his continuing success. And I just, I don't know, I think that's an interesting thing that happens with us as athletes age. And like, to your point about seeing the whole story unfold, it's like, I think I wrote this one time in a piece when Vince Carter was retiring, but mm. like an athlete's career is kind of like a lifespan in miniature. And so getting to watch the whole thing play out is like this very, I don't know. It's like a very poignant experience as uh if, if you care about sports to, to kind of get to see that entire journey from start to finish. Absolutely. I mean, and, and like as much as we can talk about, you know, pick and roll coverages and, and schematic adjustments and points per possession and whatever, you know, play type, like this is the stuff that, you know, got us to sign up in the first place, right? Like that kind of storyline. So that's why I, I talked with, uh, I'm sure a friend of yours, Katie Heindel, um, uh, a couple weeks ago where we talked about like the idea of narrative being a dirty word or being something that people sort of strive against or use it as a pejorative because it's like, well, that's not, if you're pushing a narrative or if you are emphasizing the narrative sweep of this as opposed to the facts of the case, like, yeah, okay. Sometimes, yeah, sometimes that, 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 that you know, we, it's the way we process information. It's the way we share uh, our sort of feelings and our emotions. It's the way that this stuff impacts us at our core, at, the, at, the, at our core. So like, I think there's room for both of them. And I think that being able to see sort of all of that, where you can say specifically and, and analyze, why is it that every team that LeBron's on is like so much worse when he's off the court? And what does that say about like the way he, the impact of the shadow that he has over his team or whatever, that's totally something to do. Or like, 
uh, well, you know, LeBron in transition averages X you know, points per possession this way and uh, increases their frequency to this level. And here's what that means in terms of the schematic matchup between these two teams. That's totally valid, but also being like, it's incredible to see like the the lion of the last 20 years of the NBA having to figure it out and problem solve in real time differently than he ever did before. That's also a perfectly valid way to interpret all this stuff. So if you're somebody who is staking out, uh, I don't know, social media islands to argue with one another based on these sorts of things, consider going for a swim instead. <laughs> all right. That's a great place to leave off this portion of the conversation. That's... Um... The, that, consider that your in-season tournament semifinal preview, I guess. Um, <laughs> Go for a swim. Yeah. <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll leave that there. We'll take a quick break and uh, we'll come back and talk about some other teams. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out the Scores Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out the Score's YouTube page for an informative yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. Okay, Dan. In true Pound the Rock fashion, we've gone, you know, over half an hour here without really getting to the meat of this episode, but... This is not a you problem, that's a me problem. This is It's it. definitely a me problem as well, as, <laughs> as listeners of this podcast will know. So, uh, yeah, we've, we've joined forces, I guess, in our uh, digressive attitudes toward uh, basketball conversations. But um, I did want to pick your brain about the league at large and in the spirit of a column that you used to write, which I always really enjoyed, a weekly column oh, thank you. called The Five Most Interesting Teams of the Week, where you would just zero in on five teams and delve into everything that made them interesting to you. I basically, uh, I'm, I'm turning this podcast over to you now, Dan. I didn't give you a set number of teams, so mm -hmm. you can pick you know, as many or as few as you like, but who have been the most interesting teams in the NBA to you so far this season? Well, well, first off, thank you for the kind words about the thing I used to write. I actually, I, I, I was, I had like volunteered to do it again this season because we, my, when we were figuring out planning things, it was like, we, you know, we want to make sure we've got some franchises, some things that we know, like every week we're going to have this on this day. We're going to have, and my colleague Ben Rohrbach is fantastic with that. It's got several of them uh, at Yahoo Sports, but I was like, oh, well, that's the only one that I've ever done that like stuck. So what about that one? And they were like, that's like maybe too many words. Um, maybe you are, like, you're doing two shows and we want you writing other stuff too. So let's not like pencil you in for that. It's like, all right, fair enough. So it, it, it became something that I did as like a season preview conceit. And then I blew it out into like a full column for each of the five teams. But, um, maybe, you know, who knows hope springs eternal. Maybe that comes back around. Although I'm sure my editors are not hoping for more of that copy. Um, I would say, so like, it's it's a little bit tricky, right? Because some of the teams that I found most interesting are the ones that we have been talking about. Like the, the Pacers um, are one that I've, I've been focusing a little bit more on this week just because of the, the extreme polarity of that team where it's like, we are going to be absolutely balls to the wall in one way and we are going to be absolutely dog walked in the other. <laughs> and where do we net out in there? And what does that say about what value, what, you know, where the current strength of, of the NBA is and what matters most? Um, but we've already talked about that a bunch. And here's also a shameless plug. I talked about it for an hour with Caitlin Cooper. So go listen to that. Um, 
but the Bucks, uh, I, you know, again, we just talked about them a bit, so I don't want to, I won't overemphasize it, but like that they are still very much so clearly a work in progress. And yet, what is it like 15 and six with a number three offense and like a near top 10 defense over the last month? And you're like, man, imagine when they get good. Like that, that's been kind of uh, one of those to me. But yeah, well, you know, we'll say, say a couple of things with the, with the Bucks there. Yeah, like I'm interested in the Bucks being a top five offense when they've got Giannis and Dame on the floor together. Best in the league caliber offense when it's Giannis by himself. And then like still top seven or top eight when it's Dame. Like it's it looks different and the effectiveness is not like you, you'd like it to be a little bit better in the Dame no Giannis minutes. And you certainly like it to be like off the charts when they're there together. But it, it, the the consistent level raising of that offense, and then also to say nothing of what Dame has been in the clutch and in the fourth quarters of these games, it feels like all right, it's been a little rocky. It hasn't looked exactly the way we've hoped, but we are getting what we wanted out of this. And what the ultimate ceiling for that? Like, what does it all look like when they they finally put it all together? It feels like maybe there's still one wing piece too few. Like. They're experimenting with them with Marjan Beauchamp. They're experimenting with Andre Jackson Jr. a little bit. Maybe the answer is just they need Jay Crowder back healthy because um, they. I think he had only started like two games before he got hurt, but they were they had moved in that direction. So it's like maybe it's just that you get everybody healthy. Um, then again, thirty three year old coming off of a ab like ab tear. I think like you know what? How much can you rely on him after he's been out for two months? But yeah, like I think. We expect everybody expected them to walk in like formed like Voltron day one and just like flaming sword lay it on down on everybody. And then it hasn't looked quite like that. But then you kind of like blink and look up and you're like, oh, it's still pretty damn good. Yeah, I so I was talking to Cash about this like a couple episodes back. And my feeling was, you know, you mentioned I wrote about the, the Dame Giannis two man game early in the season and the struggles that they had kind of getting off the ground. I do think it's been a lot better lately but still not as good as maybe a lot of us expected it to be coming into the year and like definitely not as high volume. And I'm starting to feel like maybe that's okay. Like if these mm. guys are just killing it independent of one another, and it's not totally independent of one another because I do think just being on the floor at the same time is helpful for both of them. Like Giannis has this interior gravity that I think opens up a lot of stuff for Dame. And Dame obviously has this perimeter gravity that is helpful for Giannis. So if they're just out there together kind of doing their own thing or working in two-man action with other guys on the floor, they're still helping each other out. If it's not as explosive or dynamic with the two-man game as we thought it would be, but like they're still killing it in other actions, then I think that's fine. And I'm, I don't know the extent to which they're going to figure it out. Like maybe it will continue to get better. But I think in watching them, I've started to feel like, okay, for Dame, it doesn't work as well with Giannis screening for him as it does with say Brooke Lopez screening for him. Cause right. Brooke much better screener. And I think a lot of the time what Dame is looking for is somebody to just create a lot of space for him, whether that means, you know, walking into a pull up three or essentially like beating a hedge and driving all the way to the rim. And I think with Giannis, he's not nearly as good a screener as Brooke is. And his impulse also is to slip a lot of the time. So yep. like Dames as a scorer, at least is not really getting the benefit of those screens to the same extent. And then, you know, with Giannis screening and rolling, 
he's had a lot more success doing that with Middleton than he has with with Dame, and maybe that's just a, a familiarity between the two of them. They yeah, like thousands of reps lot, for years, a right? lot longer. But it's also that they initiate those actions a lot closer to the basket. So if he's slipping out of a pick and roll with Middleton that they're initiating inside the arc, then he's going to have a much better chance to like catch the ball and finish at the rim. Mm-hmm. Whereas like when you're doing it 30 plus feet away from the basket with Dame, you're usually catching the ball at like, you know, maybe the top of the key. And then what you have to do in that situation is much, much different, you know, doing the four on three thing, which again, I think he's gotten a lot better as the season has gone along. But those decisions weren't coming as naturally to him in the early going as maybe I expected them to. So I think it's possible that we'll get to the end of the season and the two-man game between them looks as, you know, sort of up and down, I guess, as it does now. And they might still be, you know, the best offense in the league. Yeah. Well, maybe not. They're like four points per hundred behind the Pacers right now. Yeah. Yeah, there's third, third, third overall, second in half court, and like if you're that, yes, the the gap between them and Indiana is huge. But also, if you are eleventh in defense and they are twenty ninth, you know you're making up gaps in other ways. Um, so shout out real quick, my guy Jared Dubin over at his uh, newsletter last night in basketball. He had, like clipped out a couple of actions that they've been using, noting like they are using all of those guys together more. And there was one that it was like. Giannis uh, dribble handoff with Dame and then Giannis goes over to pin down for Middleton and he's coming out of an empty corner and Brooke is like one pass away. And you're just like, I mean, what the hell are you supposed to do with that? Like if, if, if for, if the initial dribble handoff, if Dame, if uh, Giannis gets enough of his guy or like the, his guy drops behind defensively, Dame flows into a pull up. If not, he just makes the next, the next read Middleton goes and drives or he hits Giannis on the slip, or the skip is over to like Brooke or Malik Beasley, who's shooting the cover off the ball over in the far corner. And you're like, all right. I mean, every every option out of this is terrifying. And so they, they haven't gotten to all of that stuff yet, but they're starting to. And that's the thing where you're like, man, there's so much more meat on the bone. And then you look and it's like, there is a barbecue platter already here. Yeah. And whether we, we'd still go carve up more is kind of wild. So I think that that to me is interesting. And then just like, where do they net out defensively? Is there, an, everybody knew they were going to take a big step back after the the uh, losing Drew, but also like the other perimeter guys too, where, you know, it's it's also West uh, West Matthews is gone. And also you move off from Grayson Allen, who's not great, but was like part of the rotation. Yeah. And you're sort of backfilling. Javon, Javon Carter, Carter goes. Yeah, the yeah. big one. Um, like, Javon Carter goes, so you're backfilling and trying to find all these answers on the fly. And it's still not great, but, you know, if you are netting out around like a top 10 defense with that offense, it still feels like that's that, that's got to be more than good enough or it could be more than good enough. So they they are they bear watching and the good news is we'll get to watch them again uh, in a few hours. So I I have I have more here, but I also I do. Do you want me to do you want to trade? You want to talk back and forth? You have something that you want to that you want to get to? No, no, I was just going to leave it to you to to pick the teams that you're interested in and I could okay. maybe riff off of that a little bit, but I'm I'm okay. I brought you on to pick your brain here. So Oh, okay. All right. I I didn't, I didn't want to like uh, you know, ISO. I want to make sure we're we're flowing in the in the offense. Um No, it's all right. I mean like I you know, I come on this show every week to offer my takes and uh, <laughs> you know, it's it's good to have a fresh set of eyes here. So Fair go. Fair enough. All right. Um okay. Uh, the Pistons are interesting to me in a very different way. Cause I kind of don't know what the hell we're doing here. Yeah. Um, so it table stakes are, 
uh, 18 straight losses, which there's only 15 teams in only 15 teams in NBA history have ever had a longer losing streak in a season. And there's been a lot of NBA history uh, and a lot of team seasons in that span. So we're in pretty rarefied air here. And just the general sense of searching that seems to be going on with it, like nine different starting lineups. Some of that's injury, some, but a lot of it is just like, okay, what can we do to get some production offensively in the starting unit? What can we do to get some production in the second unit? Because Alec Burks has not been good and you weren't getting a whole lot of point production from whoever else was coming off the bench there. Like you've got James Wiseman, but he's playing 10 minutes a game and getting DNP CDs. You got Marvin Bagley the third, but he's, you know, in and out and barely in the, you know, uh, in the rotation minutes and like, uh, Jalen Duran looks great, but then now Jalen Duran gets hurt and Jaden Ivey goes from starting to be in the 11th guy off the bench to starting again and had uh, told my colleague Jake Fisher, like kind of really wasn't any communication about what was going to happen with that or why that was going on. Killian Hayes basically exclusively takes floaters and mid-range jumpers, <laughs> only shoots like 40% on them and yet is like sharpied into 28 minutes a game. Now we, we respect defenders who move the ball, but like, come on. And so there's just all this stuff where like Asar Thompson, like one of the brightest young spots in the league among rookies loses his starting job, you know, for spacing, I guess. But then you get Boyan Bogdanovich healthy and he's coming off the bench and it's like, what are we doing here? And what is the ultimate goal? It feels like, and maybe I'm wrong here. The ultimate goal is or should be what what's the context to put around Cade Cunningham? What is the best context we can provide for him? Which then I think makes the bigger question. And I talked about this a little bit on no cap room uh, a couple of, I don't know, a few losses ago, a couple of weeks ago. The question now is starting to become like, to what degree is this? We are hamstringing Cade Cunningham. And to what degree is this starting to become about Cade Cunningham? Like, are we seeing, that maybe the heights of prospectum that we thought he would get to might've been a little bit lost, you know, that maybe we overshot on that. Mm-hmm. And maybe this is less like, here's the next Luca and here's a lower wattage prospect. And like, which is also okay. Like there are only, but so many of those guys, but then like, if that's the case, then the guy who makes this makes sense out of everything else in Detroit, maybe doesn't make as much sense out of it as, as, as you'd hoped for. So all of that is to say like, losses breed a lot of things to pick at, but like this is like all questions and no answers. Right. And I am, I, I find myself fascinated by it in the way where you're like, I don't know, like it's, it baffles me, but it compels me. Yeah. Uh, I, I agree on pretty much all of that. And I think the, <laughs> the, the question is, it's not even really a question. It's just my feeling about it is it's totally fine if you are like a young rebuilding team, but you also care about building good habits, not wanting to expose those young guys to like too much losing and ineptitude, wanting to have veterans, you know, not only in the locker room, but on the floor who can facilitate some development for these young players in the way that they are able to share the ball or space the floor. That's a justifiable reason to like play veterans over young players that you might want to develop. But nothing is working. Like, you've lost 18 games in a row. Yes. So burying Jaden Ivey, like, what is the point of that? I look at this team and I'm like, if you're picking out kind of a core four, 
where you can look at four prospects that you have and say, this is going to be something resembling the foundation that we want to move forward with or that we feel like can grow into something meaningful in a couple of years. It's Cade, Ivy, Duran, and Asar Thompson. Absolutely. And so to me, you're 2-19. and 19, You've lost 18 games in a row. Regardless of of how you feel about like wanting to foster like a more competitive environment and like whether you feel like playing more veteran players like Alec Burks and you know I guess Killian Hayes doesn't constitute like a much of a veteran player at this point he's in his fourth year but it's like that's a player where I think he's shown enough to be like yeah you can stick around the league for a while you bring yeah. certain skills to the table but I don't, he doesn't look like a building block anymore so to me it's like okay we're losing all these games anyway. The, the best thing that we can do at this point is like play those four guys as much as possible, play them together as much as possible, see what it looks like, see what pieces fit around them best and what what we're building toward with those four guys. And so, yeah, pulling, I, like, pulling Ivy not only out of the starting lineup, but like out of your first batch of, of like reserves to come onto the floor as well, pulling Asar Thompson out of the starting lineup, it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me so that's where i'm like scratching my head and being like what is actually the goal here yes because they're they're failing on every front it also makes me think like and i don't i don't know him so uh this, it might be that this is the truth like is isaiah stewart like the best guy in the nba like, <laughs> like is he just like an incredible friend like do people just is where everyone's like the, the, remember- De- the deandre jordan corollary yeah, right. He's, he's, he remembers everybody's birthday. He remembers your yeah. mom's first name and asks how she's doing. Like, uh, like you know, he, he, always a thoughtful gift, not like a gaudy gift, but like, oh, he remembered that I really liked that author. He f- found like a first edition novella that they wrote. That's incredible. Um, because the effort that has been put into Isaiah Stewart stretch for switch big as like a cornerstone piece of who the Pistons want to be seems like... He's fine. He's perfectly fine. But for that to be like, well, okay, first thing we're putting into the into the jar, the big rock is going to be Isaiah Stewart, stretch four, switch big. And then what else fits around that? You're like, I don't know, man, maybe either get a bigger jar or put some other stuff in it because I like there's not going to be room for everything else if you put that one in there first. Um, so I don't quite get it. And maybe, and this is where like part of me goes like, Maybe I'm just not four-dimensional chess chess boxing well enough where I'm like, clearly Monty Williams, who is like making better than the mid-level exception to coach this team, has a better idea of what he wants to get to than I do and like understands way more than I ever will. I firmly believe that. But then you're like, I don't know, man, if there's 18 straight losses, maybe I'm not all the way wrong in missing the point of what we're doing here. And I just, I want to say like Cade Cunningham, a quiet quote of the year candidate from a couple of weeks ago. This is quote, we got to be realistic after the situation. It's hard to be like, oh, we're good. We're good because we're bad. We got to address that. And then since then they have lost seven more games. Like, <laughs> So I find them interesting because I'm like, what will the quotes be in two weeks? You know, like they, the, it, it's the, the schedule doesn't soften up. They just got the Grizzlies and then they got, they got lost by 15. Like, it's not going to get easier. So, uh, I don't know, you know, where, where do we, where do we go from here? And you know, what, what's the ultimate, uh, ceiling for what they get to? I, I know the goal was 
Monty Williams, please do for us what you did in like the with like the Bubble Sons. And A feels like we're a long way away from that. B for that to happen, I'm not saying that Cade Cunningham needs to be Devin Booker, but the whole premise seems to circulate around like we've got the big big wing guy that creates for us. And uh, no, in fairness to him, like three point shots come around the last 10 games. Maybe the structure is a little bit better. Maybe he starts to tick up now that they've got some more healthy guys, yada, yada, yada. But man, strange day at windswept fields over there, man. It's a tough hang. For sure. And I, I, I understand why, obviously I understand why there's so much negativity and pessimism about this team right now. But I would say that we have seen situations somewhat like this turn around very quickly. And I'm not saying that's going to happen, but it can't. Like, I look at the Phoenix Suns from a few years ago where, mm-hmm. like, in 2018-19, they won 19 games. And then the year after that, suddenly things started to click. They were a near 500 team. They went 8-0 in the bubble. That offseason, they get Chris Paul. And the, the season after that, they go to the finals, you know? The Thunder looked like... You know, they were on this path to like a five-year rebuild where they were just going to be dwelling in the cellar. And then suddenly everything clicked and now they look like a juggernaut. Again, not saying that's going to happen for the Pistons. I'm just saying it can happen where you're playing a lot of guys who don't entirely know what they're doing right now. You don't necessarily have the right mix or know how it all fits together. But maybe it's like you sign your version of Ricky Rubio in the offseason and all of a sudden the pieces are reorganized in a way that makes sense and everything clicks like that we have seen that happen before so if you're you know holding out some level of optimism for this Pistons team as I guess I feel like I am for some reason it's that just because it looks like a completely meandering mess right now doesn't mean that it's going to look that way two years down the road no, that's absolutely right. And I think it's better to look at these things from a hopeful perspective than from the pessimism of just like, well, you're going to be dog shit forever. Like, I, yeah. I think that's fair. But I do think the, the the commonality there, again, not to put too fine a point on it, is like that that Thunder had young SGA. Those, that, those sons had young Booker. And yeah. so you need – Cade is the obvious target, but like – or the obvious – Point there, but like maybe it's Ivy, you know, maybe it's Asar makes a giant leap, whatever. But like one of those guys needs to pop in a better context. So yes, putting the right context around those guys, great. But you better find it fast, man, because it's getting it's getting dark early. Um, all right, go go. This is I, I don't know. Maybe this is just me being sort of uh, having a sickness, but uh, I'm starting to become more interested in the Grizzlies again. Uh, speaking of, they just beat the, they beat the Pistons. They've now won three of four. They're five and eight over the last month, which I know, like, let's, you know, plan the parade route. Um, but they, obviously they had like as rocky a start as you can. John Morant being suspended. Do you lose, uh, or you confirm that you've lost Steven Adams right before the start of the season. And everybody, a lot of the hope for them normalizing was pinned on Steven Adams comes back. That stabilizes things in terms of another, you know, ball moving hub, a guy that can play the center minute so that Jaron Jackson Jr. doesn't have to. We have like, it's the offensive rebounding. It's all the, the box outs that kind of open up your transition game, all that kind of stuff. And then losing him and then a bunch of injuries early in the season. You bring Marcus Smart in, doesn't not going great. And then he gets hurt. Luke Kennard couldn't shoot for his, to save his life at the beginning of the season. Then he gets hurt. Um, none of their wing guys were popping. Uh, David Roddy's the best of the bunch and he's still shooting like 40% from the floor. Uh, every, uh, everything is on Desmond Bain's plate. 
they have somehow gotten back to like 10th in defense and their offense has been terrible, but the guy who makes that all work is five games away from coming back. And Desmond Bain in his absence is averaging, let me get the numbers up here. It's 25.1 points, 5.4 assists, 4.5 rebounds a game, 47, 38, 86 shooting splits. Like the massive jump in usage rate is up over 30%, I think for the first time, um, you know, touches and time of possession, all that stuff all up still above average shooting efficiency. The assist rates up the turnover rate steady. Like he has done everything you could ask him to do as being like the, uh, in case of emergency, be our all-star. I don't think he's going to make the all-star team on like a five and 14 team or whatever, but like, or six and 14 team, unless things dramatically change, but they looked like their season was about to completely disintegrate. And they've just like hung around there. I think what, like three, three and a half games out of the play-in or three games out of the play-in. There's still a long way to go. They're about to get their guys back. There's a chance that like in two weeks you get Ja and Smart and Kennard back. And then you've got like your full complement of wing guys. The big, the, there's still the big hole. Uh, Xavier Tillman had missed some time. He's back now. Maybe you actually like get the semblance of what, that team can look like in the absence of Adams and Brandon Clark, like the, the, there's not a whole lot of news out of there about like, well, what, what's his recovery timeline like, but that was really like the quiet extra killer in the second half of the season for them last year, him popping the Achilles. And so then you lose Adams and him and John. It's like, well, now the center rotation's just gone the you know the the ability to go small with Jaron Jackson Jr. and Brandon Clark together is gone. Um, so much of of what's helped us with our tra- up tempo identity and the sh- weak side shot blocking and all that kind of stuff. If if he is able to get back and give you know fill out that rotation, or if they're able to make another play for a guy to add to Bismack Biombo, add to Xavier Tillman, and sort of another just live body in that mix that helps them get back to their identity. I'm not saying they're going to, you know, go to go to the Western Conference Finals or anything, but like I think that there's there the opportunity is out in front of them. Like they they've they've weathered hopefully the worst of this. And there's an opportunity I think out in front of them. But maybe that's like, you know, uh rose-colored glasses. You know, you talked about your optimism for Detroit. Maybe I'm having that for Memphis. I think it's more justified in in Memphis's case just because we've seen it before when they're at something close to full strength and they've right. been nowhere close to that this season like no Jod, no Steven Adams no Brandon Clark Smart has missed the last I don't know 10 games or so Kennard has been out for like I think he's played you know 10 games or something like that and that might not seem like much but when you are dead last in three-point percentage having one of the best three-point shooters in the league on the floor can be really helpful so yeah I, I would hope to see them get back to something resembling full strength even apart from getting jaw back which is obviously going to be a huge difference maker and like so jaw won't solve all of this because a lot of it was the Steven Adams thing but like you can look at what they did over the last couple of years like two years ago was the most dramatic it was one of the craziest things I've seen where they were 22nd in first shot half court offense and third in offensive rating overall because a they turned those first shot possessions into second shot possessions more often than any team in the league. And B, they ran out and transitioned more than any team in the league. Yes. And they're just not getting the benefit of any of that now. Like they've gone from being first in transition frequency to 20th, and they've gone from being first to 21st in offensive rebounding. Right. So it's like giant the things that right? made them successful 
uh, are completely gone. And Jaw coming back will, A, I think, make them better in the half court. They're 26th right now in, in first shot half court efficiency. He'll help with that because right now, as great as Desmond Bain has been, it's just really, really hard for them to like break the defense down off the bounce and create advantages. Right. And then he's going to help them get out and run, which is where they really thrive. So he comes back, they get Smart back, Kennard back. And I, I don't know if Clark's going to come back this season, but big shout out to Santi Aldama, who's, I think, done a really Absolutely. good job of stepping up in his place. I could see them making a run toward one of those lower rung playing spots. Yeah, and then if, if you have a team that's actually sort of healthy and operating, you know, if Ja, you know, and obviously that is the one of the larger questions hanging over any franchise in the entire league is what is Ja Morant when he comes back and how, what has the experience of being away this for this amount of time and the discussion, the, you know, around it, the sort of fraught discussion around it, what is that, how has that impacted him? Um, and you know, what is he able to be when he comes back? Because at their best, he was like a suffuser of joy and swagger that really elevated everything about that franchise. And so much of that has really fallen apart, uh, the last, like, you know, not even year, but you know, whatever, uh, nine months or something like that. So if he's able to re, you know, rejuvenate things that, that would go a long way, but yeah, you know, you, you like, when you talk about if you if you have a table or a stool and you like chop out one leg, it starts to wobble. They had like every leg chopped out from under them. They are just laying on the ground because it was the offensive rebounding. It was the transition game. It was John, the pick and roll. It was, you know, the, the, the depth of what they had in the front court, all of it, all of it went away. And so for them to have stabilized enough to get to like, to get to a top 10 defense. And obviously Jaron Jackson Jr. reigning defensive player of the year, but also a contextual player as well. Like, he when you just have to lean on him at the five, only works but so well. So getting Bismack Biombo didn't seem like a big deal, but like helps just stabilize things. But um, yeah, we've we've somehow managed to go from like what's the most fascinating thing to talk about and be the Pistons and the Grizzlies. So I'm sorry. I feel like if, if this is the lowest rated Don't episode of, of Pound the Rock uh, in history, I'll, I'll understand what happened. No, I mean this is the, these are uh, important teams to talk about because. You know, when the Grizzlies inevitably make their second half surge, we can point back to this episode right. and say that we alone saw it coming. <laughs> but Not uh, even yeah, no, like right, see it coming. right now it's like, yeah, Bismack Biombo's their starting center. He's playing like 26 minutes a game. They just signed Jalen Noel to a couple 10-day contracts. He's playing 20 minutes a game. Like this is how yeah. they're filling out their rotation. And um, it's just, they've been so snakebitten, so... I do think that the the bones of a really good team are still here. I just, you know, whether we see those bones get fleshed out at any point this season is is the big question to me. I did want to ask you before we move on from the Grizzlies, though. So I know the context has changed a bit, but Adams only played half the season last year. We saw a lot of Jaron at the five. How do you feel about his defense this season compared to last year? Because I feel like it hasn't been quite at that same level. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think, I mean, and that was one of the things when I, well, I, I'm a voter for year-end awards. I did vote for Jaron Jackson Jr. for Defensive Player of the Year. And one of the supporting sort of pieces of information for that was that even after that injury, like they, when he was at the five, they were still an elite defense. And so that was, um, that was something that I think made a lot of, or helped a lot. I think it's all, you know, we, we forget the human elements of this sometimes where it's not just are you good enough to be the anchor? It's like you're adjusting to he is Jaron Jackson Jr. had played probably as much as many minutes with Dylan Brooks as he had with like any other defender in that system. 
and now you're moving on from from him and from Tyus Jones and bringing in Marcus Smart and adjusting to new, you know, new threes and new fours that you're trying to work together with. And now you're having to play center or play the four next to centers that you haven't spent as much time with. Like there's just so many spinning plates you got to try to keep up in the air. And so I don't think that he individually has looked quite as sort of menacing and devastating. You know, the 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 rim protection numbers, I think optimistic that those will revert or at least or sort of stabilize and normalize you know he's not going to get the benefit of the you know what was the controversy about the home scoring on all of his blocks maybe maybe we won't have quite quite as many uh viral uh reddit threads about that but i think here's you're still talking about somebody who can impact the game at a, at a significant level with just the threat of his weak side shot blocking it's still you know yeah, the last year it was it was three blocks a game this year he's just you know it was 1.9 the defensive impact numbers in terms of field goal percentage around the rim, yeah, it's not uh, best in the world, but it's you know it's it has the opportunity I think to get back there. I think if you see more opportunities for him to be be in that sort of familiar role, so a little bit more of him being able to to sort of roam off the corner from the four, a little bit more of him being able to to understand like this is where my guys are going and what they're funneling to me. The, the repetitions and the familiarity with the 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 guys up in front of him, um, I think that that'll help stabilize things for him. But the fact that they've been able, even with him maybe not being quite at the level he was last year, uh, to still get to a top ten level on the on the defensive end, I think bodes well for their chances of climbing up those rankings even higher over the next you know couple months. What else you got for me, Dan? Any more any more teams have caught your eye, or just just the bottom feeders for you? I, I was gonna say we can go uh, if you want to go one more. Um, I don't have like I, I don't have a ton of notes on this, so we'll have to talk through it on the fly. But the Wolves, because I so la, heading into last season, they were one of my five most interesting teams, and I wrote you know wrote a piece about them, paid great attention to them all season long because they were kind of a disaster. Um, it seemed like they were finally getting their 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 act together late in the season, and then they have a fight on the sideline, and uh, Jaden McDaniels breaks his hand, punching a wall, and they you know mule out in round one. Although you know whatever Denver you know, Bruce Brown saying like you know that was the toughest series we had. It's like well that was maybe just him trying to tweak the everybody else they played, but uh, they they you know they did take a game off of the uh, you know the eventual champion, so you know raise the banner, but. Um, Maybe we were just a year early, like 16 and four, number one in defensive efficiency. The numbers have been, I don't have them in front of me right now, but like all of the numbers that looked terrible last year, where it was the offense is terrible when you've got Cat and Rudy Gobert on the floor together. The defense is terrible when you've got Cat alone. The offense is terrible when you've got Rudy alone. Like a lot of it has normalized and you're seeing the actual, like the benefit of some, I, I'm sure some familiarity, some, you know, more repetitions with everybody healthy. I think you're seeing the overall impact of the midseason deal to bring in Mike Conley as a sort of a, a calming, distributing presence who's able to navigate the obvious ascent of Anthony Edwards into life as not just a number one option, but like bona fide all-star guy who's going to be vying for all NBA teams year in and year out, who should be the highest usage, highest leverage player on that team without that somehow losing Carl Anthony Towns, without Carl Anthony Towns winding up being like lost in the wash there and still Rudy Gobert getting enough touches and enough attention that he's going to guard the yard in the way that you would hope that he would. 
and uh, where he's looking, I would imagine he's probably the uh, favorite for defensive player of the year right now, um, given the impact that he's had for them and how much better he's looked. It's like healthier and the way he can, he's, he's guarding on the perimeter and then being able to sort of wall people up one-on-one in isolation in space, which was always the thing that people sort of knocked him for. It's all clicking together a lot better than I think anybody expected to expected that it would not. I mean, this time last season, everyone was like, well, this was a failure and a flop and it was the most disastrous trade you could have possibly imagined. And that still may wind up playing out because of just the sheer number of assets that went out the door. But I like my big, I don't know if it was hot or not, but my big take at the time was the whole idea of trading the future for Rudy Gobert is that you already have the future and his name is Anthony Edwards. And so we have the bones of a top five offense. We are going to aftermarket parts gra- snap on like the the you know lighting ground effects kit of a top 10 defense with Rudy Gobert. And we think that the combination of that is like a 55 win team. And now they are on pace to be a 66 win team with uh, the best defense in the league and one of the best net ratings in the league. So how sustainable it is, I think Bears watching what kind of matchups they can survive in the playoffs. I think Bears watching, but the fact that you can play as huge as they do and Nas Reed has been sensational for them. I, I would imagine like sixth man of the year conversation for him for sure. They can play so big so often and still have a legit offense that can stress you out in so many different ways and that the vibes are not so strained by a tug of war for whose team it is. It feels like this is a, like Tim Connolly, I would imagine, is sitting there just going like, all of you shut up. I was right, you jerks. You just needed to wait and see for a minute. Give me a minute. Let me cook. Here you are. Well, if Tim Connolly is actually doing that, then he's just like me because <laughs> I, while recognizing that the acquisition cost was very steep and might wind up biting them and turn out to be one they regretted, I was very on board with the Gobert fit from the beginning. And my my stance when trades like this happen, when it's like a win now trade, has always been I'm not saying it's that you shouldn't talk about what went out the door in sure. terms of like draft capital, like that stuff matters, but I'm just way more interested in what does this mean for the acquiring team? How is a fit going to work? How is it going to look in the present day? That's just way more interesting to me than talking about who won or lost the trade right. or whether this team is like crippled its future. And I was like, I'm very much on board with you in that. Again, not that you can just like be so cavalier about the draft picks that you send out the door on top of, you know, Walker Kessler. But yeah, the future is kind of already here, not only in Anthony Edwards, but also in Jaden McDaniels, who, by the way, they opted to keep, which meant probably adding two extra first round picks to the package. Right, keeping him out, out of the, the deal. Right. Yeah. It's a, which a, a, gi- looks, a giant part of it. You know, and it's funny you say like, maybe we were a year early because there's like a running joke on this podcast that my predictions are always a year early and coming into (laughs) last season, I picked the Wolves to finish first in the West and here they are fulfilling my prediction a year later. And this is basically exactly what I expected it to look like. And all of the issues that I expected Gobert to solve last year, he has basically solved this year. So like a huge problem for them, they couldn't rebound the ball at all before he got there. I was like, oh. Here's one of the best rebounders in basketball. Boom. Problem solved. Nope. They were like 28th in defensive rebound rate last year for some reason. <laughs> yeah. 
They couldn't defend without fouling at all. Here's Rudy Gobert. His Utah Jazz teams always like top five in opponent free throw attempt rate because of like they were able to defend straight up, rely on him as a backline anchor, didn't have to be so aggressive or handsy. Nope, they were one of the worst teams in the league at sending opposing teams to the free throw line. Now they're still like not as good of a rebounding team as they should be given their size, but they're like league average. And they're one of the best teams at defending without fouling. Yep. And his defense has been as good as it's ever been. I think he is like clearly the front runner for defensive player of the year right now. He is moving unbelievably well. And I don't know, was there like, did he have a back injury or something that was like hampering him at the beginning of last year? Or I think that's right. Yeah. And, and, and maybe coming off, yeah, coming off of an uh, international play too. He was like late getting, getting to into training camp. And there was like, I think it was a, maybe a combination of those things, but he never quite looked right. And so then there was that. And then I think cat also like early season injury or, 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 or illness in training camp. That's what it was. And he had made, I think he'd like lost weight. And so like everybody was not, they didn't have everything lining up early and then cat injured early. And then again, they never got everything right. And right. so now it's like, everybody is healthy. Everybody is right. And man, are they, they're a bear to play against. And I do think, you know, the Conley addition, which we saw toward the end of last season, that was a big reason why I retained my optimism coming into this year, in spite of how disastrous last year was on the whole, I just thought him being there instead of D'Angelo Russell made everything make so much more sense offensively. Like just his ability to organize the offense, to keep Gobert involved as a role man. And just to like, I think what they needed was a distributor, was a connector, not necessarily somebody like D'Lo who was sort of going to freelance a lot of the time, call his own number. Like they, they have Anthony Edwards to be the guy who can go and get them a bucket when they need yes. one. What they needed was somebody who is going to make really good decisions. And the, you, know, you mentioned it off the top, like Gobert and Towns on the floor together. The Wolves have been like elite offensively with both those guys out there this year, which was very much not the case last year. And I think Conley's influence has a lot to do with that. And then you just look up and down the roster and like, obviously Gobert's at the center of it all, but they've got defenders everywhere. Yep. And that includes Towns, who is having by far his best defensive season. But it's like, it's Edwards, it's McDaniels, it's Kyle Anderson, it's Nikhil Alexander-Walker, who has stepped into the starting lineup without McDaniels and is just a hellhound at the point of attack. So I just, I think the pieces are fitting together so much better, obviously, than they did last year. And, you know, come playoff time, I, I hate doing this because, like, let's just enjoy what's happening now. We sure. don't have to look ahead to the playoffs 20 games into the season. But if you're talking about what's the upside of this team, I think there are some offensive concerns that are definitely still going to creep in there. But the one thing that gives me some optimism on that front, like, part of it is, okay, we got to see what, what, like, Towns and Gobert can do against switching defenses. Like, that's a concern yeah. that I'm going to have. But a big thing for me, and this is another thing that I wrote about recently, is like Anthony Edwards was a terrible mid-range shooter until this season. 32% for his career on long twos, and he's at 52% this year. And if he's actually mastered that shot, that is such a game changer for making their offense a little bit more playoff proof. And so he, and you know, no one would confuse him for Trey Young, right? But the But when you have, that's like the level you need to get to to be that kind of terror in a playoff context where I can get to the rim whenever. 
I'm a threat to pull up wherever. And then I get to the mid range. I have the stop and pop and I'm willing to get in there and throw the lob. I'm willing to get in there and make the pocket pass. I'm willing. And again, not saying he's going to be like Tyrese Halliburton or somebody like that, but more willing distributor, better distributor, more willing to look for Gobert to throw the lob. So when you have all of that going in a series, again, I've I watched the Knicks struggle with that against Trey Young a few years ago. When you they have so many ways to make you wrong in a half court set with a live dribble, and when and can just go get the bucket on their own. So Ant has the potential to be like the like the the big trump card in every offensive setting. Towns is a, a huge wild card because of it just he seems to constantly struggle with foul trouble in the playoffs. At, but like the 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 spacing he provides, the the pump and go, the driving uh, against opposing fours and fives, like that could be a huge weapon. The the collective size everywhere, it makes them so difficult to deal with defensively. You're absolutely right. No, uh, and like Nikhil Alexander Walker, I'm glad you brought him up because that was like kind of a lottery ticket throw in in the deal. And then yeah. like, no, that guy is a huge part of the team. And Mike Conley, it made me uh, say us talking about the value of him made me think of what Chris Finch said about him last night. This courtesy of my friend uh, John Krasinski from The Athletic, quote, there is no new way to say how important he is. He is really goddamn important. Um, and so like, yeah, a guy who's, you know, uh, 15, 14 or 15 percent usage rate. I'm sure his time of possession is not particularly high. He is going to you know, be the fourth or fifth guy at the trough at best to eat in that offense. But when somebody is happy with that, is understands that this is the way that we win is for me to keep our, keep our, you know all the other trains running on time and then when I do get my shots you know 600 true shooting percentage and I turn the ball over like once every other game it's a beautiful thing and so they've like it took them an awful lot of eating crap from everybody for a year to get to this point so I hope everybody in Minnesota is enjoying it because it has been one one of the better stories in the NBA this season is that it actually is working. We just had to wait a little while. Absolutely. Okay, so there you have it. Dan Devine's four most interesting teams of the season <laughs> so far. The Bucks, the Pistons, the Grizzlies, and the Timberwolves. We don't care about ratings here at Pound the Rock. If you so. want to round it out to five, we'll throw the Pist the, the, the Pacers in there from earlier. We did a lot oh, of yeah, talking about go. them earlier. We'll throw them in. And, and like, yeah. in, if you want interesting, go watch them. They're a hell of a lot of fun. <laughs> We got 60% of the central division here, folks. <laughs> um, all right. Thank you so much, Dan, for taking the, the time out, sharing your insights and your wisdom and uh, chopping it up with me for an hour and 20 minutes. Uh, I'm going to let you plug whatever you want to plug, say whatever you want to say, have the last oh. word before we get out of here. Oh, well, uh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Um, yeah, I write for Yahoo Sports. Uh, you can find my work at yahoosports.com. I'm on social media places at Your Man Divine. The big thing that I'm working on, or the thing that I'm working on more now than I ever have before, is podcast, which surprises me. Um, I have two shows on the Ball Don't Lie podcast network. One is with Jake Fisher. It's called No Cap Room Episodes. Usually every Thursday this week, we shuffled it, so it'll be out Friday. But uh, Jake and I talking about the league. Jake's talking about his reporting, me making fun of Jake. Jake making fun of me for being old. We have a good time with it. Uh, and then on Tuesdays, it's uh, the new edition this season is called Divine Intervention. It is a, a self-help podcast about basketball that I host. What that means, we're still figuring it out. I think we might never figure out exactly what it means, 
but uh, ideally a little bit of more feelingsy and jokey and vibes-based discussion about the NBA. Past guests have included uh, Zach Lowe, Jason Concepcion, Mike Levin from the Red Circuit Sanchez, uh, Caitlin Cooper on the Pacers, uh, Katie Heindel of Basketball Feelings. Uh, we've got some. I, we're gonna have some more fun people coming up to talk about, about the NBA with me. I know it's going well because both Jake Fisher and Vincent Goodwill, who also hosts a show on the Bald Line Podcast Network, have asked me why they have not been invited on the show. So the, I guess the show is going well enough that they want to come in and get some of the heat off of it. So I appreciate that. Um, you can subscribe. Maybe to they're just word. looking for some self-help advice. That's entirely possible. Yeah, man. Like uh, We're all figuring it out as we go along, and there's no shame in that. No shame in admitting it. Um, we we, re- we recommend things that are not about basketball. I talked about making baked ziti and weekend coffee. We, it's a fun time. Um, you can subscribe to all the Ball Don't Lie podcasts wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, rate and review us. Let us know if we're doing well, that you like it. And yeah, that's about all. I mean, that's a, that's maybe too much. Maybe there should be fewer things um, and, and fewer less of me. But I, I'm grateful that you asked me to come on and share a little bit of that today. It's absolutely my pleasure. And I'm glad you're getting more into the podcast space. You know, we're all sort of figuring out how to transition to multimedia as we feel the <laughs> the creeping obsolescence of the written words. So uh, you're doing great work. I will give a big fat pound the rock rubber stamp of approval to everything <laughs> that Dan is doing at Yahoo Sports writing wise and podcast wise. Go check him out. Go listen if you're not already. To our listeners, Cash will be back in the saddle next week and we'll talk to you all then. So for Dan Devine, and an absent Joe Cash, I'm Joe Wolfon, Pound the Rock. 